Hey friends, I'm Allie O'Grady and welcome to Thoughtful Human, the podcast. I had the pleasure of speaking with Angelica Catalano for today's episode. Angelica is the Director of Social Impact at The Mighty, which is the world's largest digital health community. She works with nonprofits, advocates, and medical experts to support people living with physical and mental health conditions. Angelica herself has lived with ulcerative colitis for over 25 years, which we will talk all about. Now, stepping back across all episodes on this podcast, I'll be exploring things like shame, stigma, and how to navigate conversations in challenging circumstances. I have chosen to start with a conversation about ulcerative colitis for a few reasons. Number one, there are very few things more difficult to talk about than bowels, poop, and rectal bleeding. I thought we'd just rip the Band-Aid right off and get straight into it. Number two, it's National Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month. And while ulcerative colitis is definitely distinct from colorectal cancer, it does put individuals at a higher risk for developing it. So I think it's an important place to start when it comes to awareness. And number three, both ulcerative colitis and colorectal cancer happen to be a huge part of my personal story and the root of all things thoughtful human. My mother was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis when I was eight years old, and my father was diagnosed with colorectal cancer around age 12. I have experienced firsthand the discomfort of discussing symptoms and mental health issues associated with these diseases within my own family. And I know that our lack of education and our inability to openly discuss these things really caused a lot of unnecessary suffering and delayed diagnoses for both of my parents. For my father, diagnosed at stage four, this ultimately cost his life. Colorectal cancer has the second highest fatality rate, second only to lung cancer. However, it is a slow-growing type of cancer, and it's very treatable in its early stages. Had we been more aware and open in talking about his symptoms, we would have definitely pushed for testing, and he could have been diagnosed and treated much earlier. Had that happened, he would probably still be here with us today. While I can't turn back the hands of time and change this for my family, I want to make sure it's a possibility for you and yours. Entering this conversation with Angelica, I want to quickly clarify some terminology and what ulcerative colitis actually is with the caveat, of course, that I am not a physician and you should consult your physician regarding any symptoms you may be experiencing. So there's a couple similar terms that um, some of them are used a bit interchangeably, but there are some important distinctions that I want to call out uh, before you listen to this conversation. So inflammatory bowel disease or IBD is an umbrella term that describes disorders that involve chronic inflammation of your digestive tract. So there are two types of IBD, which include ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. So ulcerative colitis involves inflammation and sores or ulcers along the superficial lining of your large intestine, otherwise known as your colon, and your rectum. Crohn's, on the other hand, is characterized by inflammation of the lining of your digestive tract, which can involve the deeper layers of your digestive tract as well. Neither of these are to be confused with IBS which is inflammatory bowel syndrome, uh, unfortunately, very similarly named and with similar symptoms, but IBS is a disorder of the gastrointestinal tract. So while they are similar, uh, IBD is generally known to have more serious symptoms and implications. It's all a bit confusing, I know, but hopefully um, those are some helpful distinctions and important as you listen to this conversation. So why does it matter to you if it doesn't impact you personally? Well, uh, it's a widespread issue. According to the CDC, 3 million people in the U.S. currently live with inflammatory bowel disease, uh, and many more cases go undiagnosed. It's also worth noting that there was about a 30% increase in the prevalence uh, from 1999 to more recent data in 2015. For the purpose of this conversation, we will mostly be talking just about ulcerative colitis. And according to the Mighty, ulcerative colitis is an autoimmune condition. Autoimmune conditions, if you're not familiar, develop when the body's immune system mistakenly sees and attacks healthy cells in the body as if they're a threat, like a virus or a bacteria. Some of those fun symptoms include frequent urgent bowel movements, diarrhea, bloody stools, and abdominal pain. 
These symptoms can also extend outside of the colon with issues like arthritis, eye redness, skin rashes, fatigue, weight loss, and body pain. Beyond this, it can also obviously have some serious impacts on your mental health, your body image, your self-esteem, energy, and other aspects of wellness. So it's really important. I will be sharing this particular article from the Mighty uh, that Angelica is cited in. Um, I'll include it in the episode notes. There's a ton of information, more about symptoms, diagnosis, talking to your doctor, mental health, dating, and so much more. In our conversation, Angelica and I discuss her personal journey with ulcerative colitis, both physically and emotionally. We chat about some of the differences and parallels between our experiences with ulcerative colitis. And in the end, we leave you with really specific tips on how to navigate conversations and provide support for loved ones impacted by ulcerative colitis and really just any health challenges at large. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Angelica Catalano. Welcome, Angelica. First of all, uh, would you mind just sharing with me your pronouns? Yes, um, you could call me she, her, hers. Okay, great. I would love to start from the beginning and have you share with our audience what your experience has been like. This has been a long journey. It's been since age six for me. Um, You definitely hear about people being diagnosed with Crohn's or colitis. in their teens or college years, maybe, I think that's more common. Um, So you could imagine that my family was pretty shocked, um, especially because I wasn't the one in my family to have a sensitive stomach leading up to the diagnosis. Um, My father and my brother have very sensitive lactose intolerant IBS kind of, you know, just irritable bowel in relation to certain foods or you know, being nervous. And I just always as a child had a very strong stomach or so we thought. Um, I presented pretty out of the blue with some symptoms. Um, Actually, the day before leaving for Europe and then through my whole first time to Europe as a child, I was in a lot of pain and had really strange stomach symptoms. Um, And getting back, I presented with this blood and a lot of icky, you know, symptoms that I was not used to, obviously. Um, so that was very alarming. And I, I quickly was moved from just my normal pediatric uh, doctor to a hospital where they really got into fairly invasive tests very quickly. Um, being that I had been out of the country, I had to be tested for E. coli, you know, all sorts of things. Um, it took about two weeks being hospitalized for them to fully give me the diagnosis of having ulcerative colitis. And that was at what age? Age six. Age six. So do you have, I mean, what is your recollection of just the emotions that you're feeling at six years old being in the hospital? Yeah, I, I would say scared, but actually I had a lot of um, fun moments, like really just focusing on, you know, when I could eat or when um, I would like be part of a room decorating costume. I was kind of ignorance is bliss at that point. Um, Yeah. I mean, obviously it was scary. My mom was by my side the whole time to the point where she (laughs) didn't leave, which looking back, that's not really emotionally healthy, but my mom slept in a chair next to me for two Mm -hmm. weeks straight. Um, Obviously had lots of like messages and stuffed animals and a lot of like big uh, gift baskets full of like chocolate chip cookies that I couldn't eat. Um, So I felt the love, like I definitely felt like a lot of that, but my brother and my best friend, who's also my cousin, um, who were also kids, weren't really able to visit me. Um, So that, that part was probably one of the worst parts is just being isolated, but I quickly made friends with like the nurses and like the woman who would clean the room. And I just kind of had like a good imagination as a child. So um, that's kind of when I first started just like kind of writing and being more creative with my thoughts. It's really interesting. I was 
as I mentioned to you earlier, I just had this conversation with my mom and I too have really complex, but fond memories visiting Mm. the hospital at a young age, uh, which I think is really interesting and says a lot also about maybe our particular families and that experience. How long was your mom? Like, do you have an idea of when you would visit her, how long she had to be seen? Yeah. Yeah. So I was about eight years old when she first started experiencing symptoms. And similarly, she was not diagnosed right away. Uh, they Mm -hmm. thought that she had diverticulitis and Mm -hmm. did some different things to manage it. And it, her illness really progressed over a three-year period when I was about Mm -hmm. eight to 11. And she did several stints in the hospital for several weeks and up to, up to about a month was Mm -hmm. her longest hospital stay. So we definitely, definitely spent a lot of time there. For me, I was like going to see my favorite person. So the hospital was kind of a good time looking for my yeah, mom. Of um, course. As so, so sad and heartbreaking as it is in retrospect, um, I do have, have those memories. So, nice. so you got your diagnosis. What happens next? Yeah. So once I was able to get out of the hospital and fairly stable on my regimen of medicine, which was a bunch of anti-inflammatories like mesalamines. Um, I was just so excited to like be able to go back to school. And um, obviously it wasn't right away. I was actually homeschooled for a bit um, for part of like first grade, I guess it was. And um, so that, that part was like, I'm excited to be doing school work. And now like after that, it was like, I could go back to school. You know, I could eat a lot of foods again. I could play tennis. Uh, My mom had a yoga instructor come to our house, which I didn't love as much as tennis, but you know, I got back into exercise. I had a really great childhood. I mean, I got into a lot of like creative imaginative play with my brother who would make movies and my cousin, like we do lots of adventures. And I was pretty much a normal child, except I had this like extra level of gratitude and empathy because my floor was full of children who were sick. And honestly, I was on a floor where some children were like terminally ill. And so from a young age, even though I I felt like I had a normal childhood. I also was like very quickly aware of how dark and unfair the world could be. So I almost felt like I was just like really lucky. And so that like led me to live a fairly joyful, you know, normal childhood. It's, it's a, a terrible burden and a beautiful gift to have that perspective at such a young age, I can imagine. Yeah. 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 So at what point then did, did you start having issues that were more problematic and impacting your regular life? Right. So this is a great question because I did reach a breaking point, um, with like emergency complication kind of level, but, I had a lot of years leading up to it, like high school, for example, where, you know, I was always in like a low grade lingering flare up. I was kind of, you know, I'd gone through puberty. So the medicine kind of had to keep being tweaked because my body wasn't responding as well, but I just like fully immersed myself in like tennis and writing and photography and had friends and didn't miss school and still felt like, oh, I'm just so privileged to like have a great doctor and all of that. But I just was always like in this low grade flare up. And I used to be like, well, as long as I could handle the flare up, it's okay. Right. But then, you know, being a teenager, that's when I first learned that, okay, well, there's a greater risk of colon cancer. So I started developing, you know, a little bit of anxiety at that point in my life Um, and how I coped with anxiety was just kind of pursuing all these like activities where I got into a flow state, whether it's like being in the dark room developing or, you know, getting lost in writing. Um, I really loved Mm -hmm. like biology and I just thought like, well, I could have a career with some purpose. But the thing was, like, I just was not doing great. And by the time I got to college, I still was very much like 
doing all of these activities I loved and really just like loving what I was studying, which was social science. But surgery was actually um, brought up by a GI doctor that I was seeing at the time. And that was my first, that wasn't my breaking point, but it was kind of the first time I was like, well, just because I'm not missing school or missing any of activities or social life, like, doesn't mean I'm doing well. I'm wondering if you're comfortable sharing to make it a little bit more tangible for people, what, what living with a low grade flare even means or feels like? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, for people that have periods, um, I often try to draw the comparison of like, you know, once a month you're crampy, you have blood, like all of those things that are normal when you have your period, but not like when you go to the bathroom and have a bowel movement, like that's not normal life. And that's kind Mm -hmm. of like how it always was where there'd always be some blood or there'd always be some cramping, just not like, it's not like I have to stop what I'm doing to run to the bathroom, but I was just never having completely like healthy, like, BMs. And I would always have my blood work kind of have a little inflammatory marker elevated, whether it was like my sed rate or my CRP. So they're, they're just always inflammation. Um, but just not like, you know, when people hear about IBD Crohn's and which is Crohn's or colitis, they think of people like having diarrhea all the time, running to the bathroom, like because it wasn't that I just was like, well, this is like my normal and I'm still doing all these things. (laughs) Like I graduated early. Like I was had over a four O I was like editor of my lit mag. I had a boyfriend. Like I just, it's, it's almost like deceiving, right? Because Mm -hmm. you have like this blind optimism where it's like, Oh, it's just some cramps. Oh, it's just some blood. Um, but that's just no way to live. (laughs) Um, Yeah. yeah. I'm curious how that affected you in maybe your relationship with your partner or just socially, if there was anything that came up for you that was, you know, challenging emotionally or that you were aware or insecure about, what did that Mm -hmm. feel like? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, In my relationship with my boyfriend, I felt a bit like a burden and um, Mm. actually it's kind of funny because (laughs) We dated all through college and when we were gra- when I was graduating early, I just told him like, y- you will resent me someday if we just like keep this long distance things going. I got a job. I was like moving to New York and he was just like, so sure we were like meant to be f- together forever. And I was like, I think you're right. But the way that we're acting, it's like we're an old married couple because he would like cancel plans to just hang out with me because I'd be fatigued. Like fatigue is another big symptom. And actually, um, so we, we broke up and, and we got together all these years later and we recently got married. So, um, that was really cool. Yeah. Cause he just always was like, you know, I don't care that you have this, like, I love you and, you know, let's do it and support each other. And I just was like, I need to be able to get to a well state, like physically and mentally, like without you and become like my own, like find out who I am as an adult without like you being a crutch for me. Um, And I'm glad I did it as painful as it was, but like, you know, I've had some really hard times since that point that I'll tell you about, but I did it pretty much without having a partner. And in some ways that really like made me the strongest version of myself. That's really interesting. I think, you know, having a devoted and compassionate support system is so critical, but also at what point do you need to, navigate that journey on your own and this idea of being a burden on other people and letting them feel what life might be like without having to be in constant consideration of your condition Mm -hmm. was was there anything I'm sure there's lots of things but 
that you're aware of in particular that was challenging for him in trying to support you? Yeah. I mean, I was definitely having a lot of anxiety um, and the anxiety would almost turn me into a colder person then. Right. Cause I would be pushing him away a bit. Um, like I had my first panic attack in college because, you know, I was trying all these treatments and I still wasn't getting in remission and surgery seemed like the only next step. Um, and my mom got diagnosed with MS. And mm. so I was just really anxious and, um, you know, he wanted, he was a support, but there just reached a point where I was leaving college. And I was like, you know, I first of all, wanted to get into health media and I got a job in that. So I was like, you know, I'm going to New York, I'm going to see a new, a new doctor, I'm gonna, you know, start my career in health media so that I could actually have like these conversations in a bigger way that reaches a lot of people. So I just like kept push. I, I allowed the anxiety of the situation I was in to push him away. Um, but these days I have much better coping um, mechanisms that aren't pushing people away that are trying to help me. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, and that's thanks to therapy and and uh, anti-anxiety medicine. Well, and it sounds like for you then something that was really helpful is your community's understanding of the space you needed at that time. Mm -hmm. So, okay, we left off in college. You and your boyfriend had broken up and you mentioned had this breaking point. Can you tell yeah. us a little more about that? Some symptoms that I'd never had before, which was just like a lot of rectal pain, which was like, well, I'm used to cramps or blood or things like that, but the rectal pain was like really disconcerting. Um, so I kept seeing this colorectal surgeon that my GI doctor recommended and she was just like, you know, fissures are really painful. Like you have fissures and she would tell me to like take sits baths and stuff. And I kept just going on with my life. And I remember feeling really bad and getting invited to a concert that I still went to. And then I had a friend's birthday party. And I think someone like my brother just said like, come on, like you gotta just like have more fun and stuff. Cause I was like working a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and so I went to this birthday party and I was in a lot of pain. And the next morning, it was a Saturday morning. I just went straight to the ER and I called the colorectal surgeon and I was like, I'm in the ER. And she was like, go home and take a sits bath. Like I just saw you like whatever. So I was at the hospital that day for a while and my brother came and met me and they had, um, done some blood work. And, um, I was like about to eat something because I was hungry <laughs> and like someone brushed in there, like, don't eat. We're going to give you a CAT scan because my like white blood count was super high. So they did a CAT scan and I had this abscess, um, in my rectum. <laughs> so mm. I, they were like, we're going to do like emergency surgery and um, the colorectal surgeon came and I went under and they did a very delicate, tricky procedure because the abscess had grown. It was very large. And what happens is it could like break through and create really big problems. And it was mm -hmm. in a precarious place. And I was like, we'll just never forget seeing the surgeon's face the next day she was just like, I'm so sorry. You, your voice was just not sounding like the level of pain that that was like, she just was like, it was mm. really close to causing like major damage. And that was just my wow. biggest complication <laughs> to date. And it was um like opening a can of worms because I had never had a complication like that. And it was 
really, really scary and awful because for once I really was actually speaking up. It just took so long to see that there was like something else going on aside from just like a flare up and some fissures. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. There's a, there's a lot there. One, just the significance and problems with healthcare providers going off of your tone when (laughs) people respond to pain so differently. Yeah. I have a lot of experience with people in my life who work in the emergency department and understand like when you see so many people, of course there are patterns and Mm -hmm. things that that you're going to treat more seriously than others. On the other hand, I know for my, for my father, every time he would end up in the ER for colorectal cancer, you know, they would ask him his pain one to 10 and he, his scale was literally like, you know, 10 is like, I have a knife in me, like (laughs) I'm dying. And so he'd be like, I'm a four. And we're like, Mm. no, (laughs) (laughs) no one is ever going to stop and escalate this. You're not a four. Most people would not call this a four. They would call it a nine. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And it's like, it's very, you know, it's, it's funny because of his personality, but it's, it's really scary when you think of the implications and how that's being interpreted and Mm -hmm. how that impacts your treatment. So that was the the first thing that stuck out to me. And just also, I mean, can imagine the excruciating pain that you're in Mm -hmm. and what other emotions are going on when you're going into emergency surgery around this? Yeah. Um, definitely as scared as I am just relieved, I'm finally getting it like taken care of. And my brother like was there with me. Um, of course my parents and stuff were, you know, back East, um, that night he, they were like, didn't have any cots. They ran out. So he literally like slept on the floor of the hospital room, like next to my bed. And I just was like, felt so lucky to have someone like my brother there for me. And so, yeah, I was scared, but I was just like relieved that I was getting care at that point. So that was your, you said your last major complication. Yeah. So that, that was, I, I did have like a panic attack after like in the months that followed, that was kind of like so intense that I just realized I was like really mentally not well. So I, I moved back East, um, knowing that I would eventually end up in New York where we were opening up another office, but I stayed in Florida in an apartment kind of near my parents. And I took like almost a full summer off of work. And, um, I just really was like, okay, I need to slow down and like reevaluate just everything. Um, and so by the time I got strong enough to move to New York, um, I saw this article. I was doing a lot of research on doctors I could see in New York. And this New York Times article stuck out that was about this GI doctor at Mount Sinai. And it was about, it was in the religion section. It was about spirituality and art and science. And it was just a very personal story um, about this doctor whose father passed away from a GI related um illness. And I was like, who is this guy? I want him to be my doctor because, you know, I had been to the Mayo clinic and all of the best places in the country. Like I felt so privileged to be able to see them, but no one had been able to get me in remission. And, um, I was like, this guy is going to be the one to do it. So the first time I talked to him, I kind of went through as long of a story as I've uh, given to you. And he just didn't interrupt me just like listened. And then when I finished talking, he stopped and he was just like, I just need to acknowledge like how much you've been through. Like that is a lot to deal with. And he just like validated my whole story. And I was like, this guy just knows the human connection and you know, he's operating not just on the science level, but on the art and the spiritual and He's like seeing me as like, not just a disease. And we 
over, it took me about eight months with him titrating stuff for me to get in the longest remission I've ever had. I just feel so grateful to know that it's possible for me to sustain remission for two years. And it's only taken what, 25 years, 11 doctors, um, 11 different medicines I've been on. Like it's been a journey and you know what? The journey isn't over. I'm always going to be, you know, one moment away from slipping into a flare up. And that is just the nature of chronic illness. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad that you found that doctor. Me too. It's incredible just the night and day difference uh, and experience you can have with someone who can give you that validation and Mm -hmm. express empathy and hasn't lost touch with the reality of people's lives and and Mm -hmm. how it's being impacted by, by a condition like this. When I was talking with my mom, she said a similar thing. Uh, Her, her surgeon who actually was also my father's surgeon, Mm -hmm. shout out to Dr. Freshman, our family's favorite human. I'm I'm (laughs) clapping right now. (laughs) Air clap. Uh, My mom was devastated because he just retired, but he, he performed her surgery and removed her whole large intestine and um, did the surgery to create her J pouch. And uh, I actually wrote down, I'll share with you what she said about him. I mean, at first when she learned she was going to, she had to have surgery and was going to lose her large intestine. She's like, you know, what does that, what does that even mean? What are you even saying to me? Mm. This is also keep in mind late nineties, not a lot of information easily available. And she said that he sat down and he drew a picture and he really calmly explained what a J pouch was. And Mm -hmm. she just explained that she had never seen another doctor that was so caring and kind Mm -hmm. and compassionate and that he really knew what a big deal it was and what the kind of impact this was going to have on the rest of her life. Mm -hmm. And that he, she said he, he would sit down, pull up a chair. You would think that he was my best friend in that moment. Like (laughs) he, he had the time, even though after being in the hospital a lot, I've seen that man darting around. He's a, (laughs) he's a celebrity in the GI, in the GI field, but you know, it's like that presence that just really uh, made her feel seen and that, that she really felt like he cared. It wasn't just, you know, this is a thing that we're doing. We're like, this is your body and your experience. And this, this means something to me. So I'm so glad that you both found that. I hope mm-hmm. as a takeaway for other people or supporters of people going through this, just the importance of really uh, taking the time to do the research. And if, it, if you don't have a good fit to know that there are other people out there that will, mm-hmm. will take the time and, and, uh, you know, hold your emotions. Although I do think they are really unique and special people who can do, can do it all right. And can do it all over time. It's really important. It's also, I have compassion on both ends actually, because I think there's so much compassion fatigue in mm-hmm. medicine and the the mental health impacts for providers who also really care and have to see negative outcomes so often. Yeah. I mean, we also experienced that in my family with, you know, our, my dad's oncologist who was amazing, but, uh, you know, you can only imagine how, how difficult it is to, to watch families go through this yeah. and having to keep a certain amount of distance just to, to protect yourself. So, um, it's a, it's a tricky territory, but it's a really magical thing of you, if you can find that, that connection with someone for sure. So I'm curious, you know, you've, you've talked a little bit about the mighty, but along this journey, what role has community played? Did you, and when did you, and how did you find community around this? Yeah, I, I think that everyone is really different. I know, like, um, I love, working with the nonprofit Girls With Guts, um, who has their own great community of women that are talking about like the really nuances when it comes to things like fertility and fistulas, which is, you know, in the abscess realm of things that gets complicated with, you know, having children and things like that. Like some people want to be part of a community that is specific to like a real niche part of your condition. 
What I like about the Mighty is that we have places for anyone going through a physical or mental health condition. And we represent 700 plus of them. So <laughs> there are some, you know, smaller, lesser known conditions, but um, to, just yeah. to, to clarify mm-hmm. in its most basic sense, can you explain what the Mighty is? Yes. So we are a digital health community um, for people living with any physical or mental health condition to connect with other people um, around content. So we have, we started as a publisher of stories and we are still very much um, publishing firsthand stories from people living with health conditions, but now we also have our own social platform. So that makes it truly a community online where people could directly connect by posting um, to the mighty and a 24 seven safe space. So it is, um, you know, a social network now as well. So um, it's definitely grown to a point where it's more than a publisher. Um, And I just still feel like every day we hear feedback from the community saying what it means to them to have the safe space where they feel less alone and that people understand what they're going through and it just never gets old. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So both firsthand stories from people directly impacted. I've also seen a lot of stories, you know, kind of like me from caregivers, supporters, parents, partners, and Mm -hmm. how everyone is impacted by, by these different issues. And, you know, from broad cancer, depression to really, really specific and rare diseases and illnesses where people can find community. And then in real time, like you're saying, Mm -hmm. you know, so network with people around that. I love the mighty. I had the great fortune of chatting with Mike uh, right at the beginning of my own journey with Thoughtful Human. And he's been really an awesome supporter. And it's been really cool just to see what, what he and and the team has done over the last couple of years. And how many, how many millions of people are on the platform now? Um, over 3 million registered users. Um, but then, you know, we still have a lot of presence on other social platforms. Like we have 50 Facebook pages of millions of people there um, and such. But, you know, we're definitely focused on continuing to bring more people to the actual um, community for, for posting and things like that. Because even though we're representing 700 conditions, you know, there are always rare conditions out there and, uh, you know, more connections to be made. Um, But at the end of the day, I think there's this like mental health thread through any um, conditions people are facing. Mm -hmm. And that has been, that's something where I know we are making a difference because we see very early research partnering with large institutions who are seeing like, how people that are dealing with things like suicidal ideation are actually reducing those feelings. So it's really cool Mm -hmm. to be able to see how this is actually translating into helping people um, get true support. Yeah, I've found it really helpful. You know, with with Thoughtful Human, we attract a community with that's, that's going through really sensitive health and mental health issues. And you know, I talk with people sometimes about their support communities and occasionally there's, there's people who are like, you know, well, what if you have literally no one and, mm-hmm. um, it's really hard and, and you, you need support and, you know, they really genuinely feel alone. And I'm like, well, there are other people. It's like, where, and mm-hmm. I have directed a lot of people to, to the mighty. I'm like, you, simply, I know, I, I don't know. I can imagine how, mm-hmm. um, isolating and alone you might feel but I can guarantee you, you are not the only person feeling this way and likely not the only person experiencing whatever, whatever actual um, issues you're experiencing. So mm-hmm. um, I found it a really good tool in that, in that way and just helping people find someone if in fact they don't have anyone uh, yeah. in their physical world that they can connect with. Yeah. Thank you for, for directing people there. And, you know, now we have safe direct messaging too. So if people follow each other, you know, sometimes people don't want to post to, yeah. you know, uh, we have like groups within the platform for different things. And even though that's like focused on caregivers or people with OCD over the age of 30, like, 
you could even go one-on-one with the safe DMs and um, at your fingertips, there's definitely resources if you're in a crisis state for um, something where you need more help than just peer-to-peer mm-hmm. support, you could easily then click through to those nonprofit resources. Yeah. I've, I know I've, I've looked at the hashtag check in with me thread also, which I think Mm. is really helpful in just normalizing, asking for support from anyone, whether that's your, your friends, your partner, professional help or a stranger. It's like, that's okay. And, uh, and people will show up and, you know, similar to thoughtful human, I could see people thinking that the mighty is really intense. Like all this stuff sounds really intense. And I always tell people, intense and depressing things are happening regardless. Yeah. <laughs> the, might, the mighty's not creating them. Thoughtful human's not creating them. Right. Uh, we're, we're bringing community and light and resources and hopefully and hope. yep. helping people navigate through these conversations to find, to find that light and hope. So, yeah. And how have you found, I mean, obviously in creating a successful company, that's making people have hard conversations easier. Like that's gotta be a source of light for you. Where, where do you find that for yourself? Double human has strangely changed my life in so many unintended ways. It sounds cliche, but I feel like really my community has impacted me maybe more than I've impacted <laughs> anybody else for sure. Just um, all the time from notes that we get and even just seeing the orders that come through. I still look at every single order and think about every person's circumstances based on the assortment of cards they're selecting. And I feel a weight knowing what people are going through, but then I feel a joy knowing that someone is sitting here thinking about how they can show up for them and making an effort to make a consistent connection. So yeah, it's been a, it's been a really interesting part of my healing journey. I just say, even just starting literally this <laughs> first podcast episode encouraged me to sit down with my mom and ask questions I've ne- I've never thought to ask or felt comfortable asking in my whole life. And so, you know, it's an ongoing uh, reciprocal healing process and community for me through my yeah, brand. Yeah, that makes total sense. Do we have time for you to share just one, one thing that you learned that you'd want to share from your conversation with your mom, who's clearly a veteran in these hard experiences. So I'd like to hear personally. Yeah. So for her, I think she's a lot more aware and communicative now than she was at that Mm. time. I think she felt very alone. I think she felt a lot of pressure as a mom of two kids, a working mom with two kids. Mm -hmm. Um, My father, they were married at the time and he was in real estate and there was this, you know, he had to be working to be bringing in money while my mom was going through this. And so Mm -hmm. um, I think she kind of felt like she had to just absorb and navigate and deal on her own Mm -hmm. and in talking with her it was just really clear you know I to me I had this vague understanding of my mom as just being sick like my Mm. mom's sick and I didn't mean that as a child I don't mean it now with any kind of you know negative association it was just like mom is in pain and mom isn't well right now yeah um I of course did not understand the emotional experience, how drugs were impacting her. You know, we talked Mm -hmm. about, like you said, the anxiety and and depression Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, everything from her, you know, getting out of the hospital and feeling so anxious to drive in the car or drive Mm -hmm. her kids in the car and, you know, how that was impacting her relationship with my dad, the impact that, you know, laying in a hospital alone for a month can have on on your perspective on life and what Mm -hmm. you need and, um, her body, the, the ways that she was in touch with or not in touch with her body and the Mm -hmm. devastation she felt and uncertainty going through the process of having a colostomy bag and then, Mm -hmm. um, having the J pouch. And I mean, just taking it in for me now as an adult, I'm like, yeah, that, that was a lot. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, fortunately she, she made a full recovery following her surgery. Mm -hmm. Of course, you know, it has, it has changed her life in various ways and forever emotionally, 
yeah, I have a, I have a whole new respect for my mom. I also, like we were saying in the beginning, I have this, you know, deep sadness and gratitude for how my parents both um, somehow still fostered this atmosphere of fun mm-hmm. for us in the process. Like I have these really um, visceral memories of going into the hospital and into the elevator and pushing the buttons and like <laughs> looking at the board and like, where's, where's my mom's name? Did they move her? You know, yeah. like, and it like, wasn't because it was routine because we'd done it a lot. It didn't feel scary in that, you know, it, I didn't feel like I was losing her. I was just visiting. These were just the circumstances at the time. Yes. And I would bring my literal like tape and stand on a chair and put it in the tape player in her room and watch a movie with her and her bed and like you know so going from that perspective to now really just starting just starting to understand you know the the breadth of that experience and what that might be like as an adult and as a as a parent um, has been really interesting I think my mom has said you know, I think one of my biggest takeaways and things that I know now that I can do for people is just uh, really be an advocate. And Mm -hmm. I think that's something she was really lacking at the time. And Mm -hmm. it was actually, again, really emotional, but beautiful to be able to, you know, look at her very recently and just say, I want you to know that no matter what happens, like I will be your advocate. Yeah. And you will be heard. And I will be there. And, you know, I was there, of course, as a child, but I think that's different and hopefully um, comforting for her to hear and know yeah. that, you know, whatever it is, she's not going to have to feel so alone um, should anything else like that, like that happen. I love to her. that. Yeah. I feel, I feel the same with my mom. Like, you know, the tables are turned now. Sorry, mom, but you've cared, you've been my caretaker, my fiercest advocate, like from the time, you know, I was young until one, my late teens. And then I took it over in college and stuff, but you know, with her on us and everything, yeah, she has my dad, but my dad works full time and he doesn't really understand these things. He tries and he's a really supportive you know, partner to her, but I'm like, you know, we both have this chronically ill bond and I'm, I'll be here. And, you know, eventually I'd like to be able to move near her. Um, because I, I will do the same. And, and yeah, I think we both are very lucky to have moms that, you know, despite what they're going through, didn't always show it, which is helpful when you're a child. And then later you, you learn, wow. Yeah. All the stuff they went through. <laughs> yeah. It was a, it was a big gift, but, and it's very overwhelming to to realize um, how much you've been protected from, and the gift of innocence, and yes, being being young and naive. Yes, uh, her. So I asked my mom, and I I want to ask you, um, knowing everything you know now, um, what are just three tangible ways that you would show up for someone navigating this experience? And I can tell you her answers first, or you can give me yours first. Um, I would like to hear hers and I'll try not to steal anything. (laughs) (laughs) They're, they're pretty, they're pretty broad, but, um, one, just having a really candid conversation, um, with someone who is, um, you know, recently having this diagnosis and making them understand that there are people who actually know what they're going through, you know, Mm -hmm. very specifically and symptomatically, um, she said without pushing them, letting them know, um, that, that you're there and, and seriously that mm-hmm. you will be there and show up and, yeah. um, that that's something people can trust and, mm-hmm. and rely on. I know she talked about, um, a good family friend of ours who actually had to come pick her up when she was being discharged out of the blue after a month. And hmm. my, my dad was working and, um, everyone was, off doing their things. And she was like, the room was a mess. Cause I was doing lesson planning. She was a teacher at the mm-hmm. time and she ha- didn't have the clothes she needed and all these things. Mm-hmm. And just having a friend that, you know, would really drop everything and show yeah. up and get it together. And, you know, the people that can just bring that energy and that don't, you don't feel like this burden. Like, yes. Yes. I think, you know, she, the way she described it is, you know, being that person for, 
for whoever it is that you're supporting. Mm-hmm. Um, and just education for her. That was a big one. Just mm-hmm. helping mm-hmm. people find the information that they need to understand what's going on with their body. Yes. I love that. So along the lines of ca- candid conversation, I think it's also, um, find out what they're, you know, how people say like what your love language is, find yeah. out like what your like communication language of how you're doing is because mm. some people like really like to talk about it. Some people don't like to talk about it. So find out like what that best communication form is for that mm-hmm. person. So like for my mom, you know, she has done something that's been helpful for my dad is like number, what kind of day she's having, um, one to 10 and how, how she is doing like on pain and fatigue and that kind of thing. So if she doesn't want to talk about it, she could literally just give him a number Mm -hmm. and he'll understand where she falls. So yeah, find out the way that you're going to communicate with this person you're supporting. Um, number two, like learn to, um, not take things personally if the person is like says no or doesn't Mm -hmm. want to you know engage like yes I think that things when you have any sort of like health challenge it it could be so like um unpredictable how your mood is going to be so I think you just need to like cut people like even an extra break so I know like with my mom sometimes her frustration with her pain and fatigue comes out as a lot of times humor, but sometimes anger, Mm -hmm. which is so interesting because she's like, definitely not an angry person, like her whole life before MS. And, you know, I think we used to have more conflict when I would take her anger, like personally, when it's Mm -hmm. totally not about me. So that would be the second thing is, so first thing is find out the communication style. Second thing, if someone says no to you, your support or a plan, or has some sort of negative emotion, that's like anger, please don't take it personally. Like, Mm -hmm. um, because I think that that could scare some people away from just not wanting to try to support at all. The third thing, just encouraging someone, whatever they're good at or what brings them a sense of joy or gets them in the zone, like try to be an advocate for that when they're, they're feeling in like good enough to do something like that. I know, um, since writing has been so healing for me, people in my life, friends and family that have encouraged me to just keep journaling or writing my poems. Like sometimes I need that reminder. And some of my most beautiful writing has come from the darkest days. So mm-hmm. someone who's like an advocate for that, um, for those side things, those are three, three things. Awesome. That is super helpful to hear. I also wanted to ask you on the other end, if what would you say to the person who says they don't want to ask because they don't know what to say and they're worried about offending someone or messing up? Mm, like, like if you're the person trying to support, but you don't. Yeah. Like I want to ask you how you're feeling. Um, mm-hmm. and if you're, if you're having any symptoms right now, but I'm worried that if you're not, you're going to be embarrassed. Or if you are, you're going to feel a certain way. Or what would you say to people who are just, who genuinely care and want to engage, but are not doing that because they are anticipating or fearful of some kind of negative response? Yeah. I mean, I think that it comes down a little bit to establishing like the communication rules yeah. a bit. Cause I know I, it's been helpful. Like my really good friend who also has chronic illnesses recently had a setback kind of similar to when I had the abscess, but like this really awful infection. And she would, she just put it out on social media saying people keep asking, like, are you doing better or something? Mm -hmm. And like, she was like, please don't like, you could, you could say like, how are you feeling? but not, are you doing better? Like, you know, cause everyone is just so particular about how they do want to be talked to. So I think just knowing that kind of ahead of time, um, the person, yeah. I was gonna say maybe even anticipating, you know, as a supporter, what your response might be if the answer is 
that they're not doing well, because I think there's this sense that, you know, this pressure we put on people, like we're moving in the right direction, right? Like things are getting Mm -hmm. better because we just don't know how to sit with prolonged Mm -hmm. um, pain and discomfort. It's like, Mm -hmm. I think it's mostly with great intentions. We want people to be getting better, um, but we don't know what to do when they're not. We're like, oh gosh, well, we can't keep acknowledging that we got to put a, we have to put a nice little bow on it. And and pretend it's, you know, in this neat little package. So I think thinking through, if someone says I'm feeling terrible, it's like, okay, what's the move? If if it's the case so that you're not putting this pressure on someone that they're disappointing you or making you uncomfortable. I think that flip happens so often where, Mm -hmm. like you say, people end up, you know, telling them they're not doing well. And then like end up handholding for the other person. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's so true in the conversation. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's a good point. I think if it's hard for you to hear that someone's not doing well, like make sure you're in a good mental space before, cause you need to be ready to hear that. (laughs) Absolutely. I think that's a great point is one, just before you do anything self-check like yes yes do I have the capacity patience and compassion in this moment to yes manage whatever the reality is on the other end here but there's a balance where you you learn like can I handle this if I can I just need to be prepared yeah that's a great yes I think yeah solved everything (laughs) there we go (laughs) well for for me too you know it's always I always tell people who are struggling with these kinds of conversations that, you know, there is no right or wrong answer. You're not going to say the thing that's going to fix rectal bleeding. That's not going (laughs) to, that's not going to happen. You're not going to take away the anxiety or, you know, side effects of a medication. Um, Right. All we can do is continue to show up. Are, you know, do you want to talk about it? Mm -hmm. I usually always say, or, or no, I like throw, I always try to give people an out. I'm like, just, just, a really quick option to dismiss me if this is not a place right. you want to be traveling and that's fine. Yeah. Um, and how do you feel about things like humor too? Like that's kind yeah. of some people, especially with colon things, like uh, I work with a girl, Caitlin, who also has um, colitis and she's like huge on humor and I don't mind it either, but she's like, you know, some people get offended if you make poop jokes and stuff like, yeah, you know, kind of know well, your audience and know if they're okay with humor or not. <laughs> I think that's a great point. And I think the vocabulary is also an interesting conversation when you're talking about like setting boundaries and Mm -hmm. understanding, you know, even how people like their own concept or relationship to their illness and what vocabulary they identify with or Mm -hmm. what they might be offended by. And even just getting that out there in the beginning, I was going to ask you that. And I did ask my mom that, and she had an interesting response. You know, I just said, what is your reaction to words like colon and bowel and Mm -hmm. other related, um, other related things? Do you feel any shame or embarrassment Mm -hmm. or stigma with some more than others or just what is your general comfort level in, you know, explicitly discussing these things? And she, like, she had a strong preference for saying colon or intestinal or stomach issues. And she had a much harder time saying bowel and rectum and, or rectal. And, mm-hmm. um, I wonder how common that is and just what, you know, how much that varies for everyone. I can imagine it. Yeah, it, quite it does. It does. And I know because I've interviewed or been there for interviews with some GI doctors, like we did for the condition guide. And, you know, we were asking about patients and like, uh, their, how is their comfort level? Like everyone is a bit different, um, about their comfort level using certain words and such. But like one of the doctors said, like at the end of the day, you know, there's nothing the GI doctor hasn't seen or heard. So, you know, certainly feel as comfortable as you can to, cause we're going to help treat you. So, Mm -hmm. you know, don't, uh, they were like, don't also beat around the bush and like leave one kind of embarrassing, troubling symptom kind of thing, like for the end of the appointment, like try to put it out there, you know, mm. but if you're not comfortable using those words with your friends and family yet to each their own, I mean, everyone's just super different. Um, I definitely yeah. don't really care, but um, the one quick story I will tell you is I, after one of my recent colonoscopies in New York, like a year ago, 
no, more than a year ago. <laughs> Time's really weird, but it was fall of 2019. Um, I had a really good report from my insides looked good. And like, I had a really important thing, a housewarming to go to later that night. So I took a car, like, can't remember if it was a cab or an Uber, but I just got to talking with the driver because it was a long drive. And I told him, I was like, I had a colonoscopy this morning. And he told me that he is never going to let someone into that end of him and that he was just not going to do it. And he said, it. do you, have you seen that Cedric the Entertainer comedy routine about it? But he, he was like quite serious. And I was like, wow, I've never heard someone be so strongly against colonoscopies. So I tried oh. to find the clip actually the other day. I couldn't, but I did see some stuff about, um, a lot of like American Cancer Society celebrities from like just doing their colonoscopy or talking about it. So I think um, people are realizing that that is very much a thing for some people. And apparently there was a recent episode of a Cedric the Entertainer uh, show that's on TV called like The Procedure and he, he gets one in that show. So I think that they're trying to maybe put more stuff in pop culture and have more celebrities like showing that this is normal and you could mm -hmm. save your life if you do it. So I just found it so interesting because I'm very open talking about those things. And yeah, I didn't realize that some people are like culture, like just not comfortable from like a cultural maybe standpoint or something. So yeah, it's an interesting line because it's one you want to respect, but I also think there's so much opportunity in power in normalizing all the vocabulary and mm -hmm. all of the symptoms and all of uh, the solutions. It's like, you know, for me as somebody who watched both of my parents struggle with colon related issues and mm -hmm. unfortunately watched my father pass away from colorectal cancer, mm -hmm. he was, he had cancer that was, you know, 10 years advanced that, you wow. know, just would have, would have been up polyp and a snip and a wow. no problem if he had been screened early. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really easy to, to, to say things like that and feel like, you know, a colonoscopy is so invasive and so extreme, which of course it, you know, can be unpleasant to prepare for, but the reality is that it's very, it's very simple. And just the alternative is 10,000 times more difficult. Yes. And I wish and it's a very nice sleep too. Like, right. It's a nap. It's, it's actually become <laughs> way more pleasant. When I was at the Cleveland clinic as a child, they were giving me enough Demerol. They said for a few hundred pound man. And I was like, not taught, like being fully put under and I was uncomfortable, but mm -hmm. since then they've, they're real like propofol or whatever they do. Like anesthesiologists know what they're doing. They do a good job. You won't know what's going on. You'll be up in no time. So yes. yeah, we need a new, we need a new campaign. We need new branding. I'm ready to yes. make our uh, colonoscopy campaign, just like the, you know, as popular as a save the tatas over here. Yes. This is my, I want to see colorectal awareness on the yogurt lid. This has been yes. my, my quest and frustration for so long. And I think the only way we get there is like, it's, it's not, there's nothing wrong with this is life. It's a, yeah. it's a part of it. It's the, mm -hmm. for cancer, it's the second leading cancer killer, uh, right. ulcerative colitis and IBD in general, um, makes you more prone to face cancer. Yeah. And, um, there's just absolutely zero reason that we, that we shouldn't be talking about it. I agree wholeheartedly and I'm with you whenever you're ready because yeah, it's one of the deadliest, but also like I hear it could be not the worst if we just were better at screening it. And a hundred percent it's slow growing. My dad would always say it's tenacious, but slow. And mm -hmm. that's, that's accurate. My father had cancer that was stage four and um, they estimated was 10 years progress when they caught it wow. at age 43. And then he lived another 10 years with it. So 
tenacious, but slow. And there's so much opportunity if you can catch it early. I mean, even learning for myself recently with a PAP, like how much mm-hmm. progress we've made in preventing cervical cancer right? by yeah. normalizing PAPs and, and encouraging women to get them regularly. It's like, we can do that yes. um, for this. If we talk about symptoms and make people not ashamed to be like, Hey, I'm not sure if this is this normal. Is, yeah, exactly. Uh, so let me ask you one more question about just organizations and, and that you would suggest and, um, yes, where to, how to find the mighty. Okay. So to check out the mighty, it is www.themighty.com. You could get it on, you know, desktop or on your phone. There's an app, which is really cool for, you know, your iPhone or Android, Um, And then as far as nonprofits, obviously there's the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America, which, you know, really knows their stuff. They're the largest and super reputable. They're doing a lot um, on policy and fundraising and all of that. And then I love personally working with Girls With Guts. If you have a female in your life who really wants a, a sisterhood to talk about some more specific, sensitive topics, they've got your back. Um, and then in general, just, you know, the mighty is there for anyone going through any physical or health, uh, mental health condition. So, you know, we're there 24 seven safe, moderated, and, uh, look forward to meeting more of you there. Awesome. And if anyone wants to read more of your specific work or writing on the topic, where, where would they find that? Yeah, so my username on the Mighty is Angelica-Joy. Um, I actually didn't get Angelica. I should have. Um, like, <laughs> I don't know why. I guess there was too many Angelicas by that point. But um, yeah, Angelica-Joy. Was there anything I didn't ask you that you wanted to share? You covered a lot of ground. So I'm just grateful that we are talking about this important topic and I just love everything thoughtful human. So I'm excited to see you go into new frontiers with this. Thank you so much. It was so great talking with you. Thanks, Ellie. Have a great rest of your week. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Thoughtful Human. If you or someone you know has navigated conversations around ulcerative colitis or other colon related illnesses, let us know. We'd love to hear what has or hasn't been helpful for you and always welcome your feedback at hello at thoughtfulhuman.co. If you'd like to follow along in our journey or check out our products, you can visit our website at thoughtfulhuman.co or find us on all socials at thoughtfulhuman. And of course, if you found this episode useful in any way, we'd so appreciate a review to help us reach more people who may need it.